0: What the Rock is cooking.
1: Hi, it's Stephen Merchant here, writer-director of Fighting With My Family, for this Darches start- commentary on the movie, and we kickstart with some vintage footage of Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Triple H doing battle. Uh, it was important to me to set up the size and scale of WWE right at the top of the movie, and, and also Dwayne's kind of iconic wrestling status within that universe, and, of course, a lot of people only know him as a movie star, so they don't even know that he was a wrestler. And um, I'm a big fan of those, uh, I think it's a classic sort of screenwriting trick to kind of start with an image or a shot that you're going to echo at the end of the movie. And um, so the young Zach watching The Rock on screen, we will sort of revisit at the very end when he's an adult. Paige, the real woman, told me that she was never a fan of wrestling. Her whole family were wrestlers and she always kind of avoided it. She had aspirations to maybe be a zoologist or a vet or something. And so this scene in which mum and dad persuade her to get in the ring because another girl has dropped out is one of the first stories that she told me about how she first got involved in wrestling. And um, are particularly interested in, she had learned some moves from her brothers and from her parents. And, you know, she, had, in a sense, had been raised in a kind of Wrestling cult, <laughs> but uh, it was not something she was interested in. So um, it seems important to me that it might be a way in for people who aren't wrestling fans if we started the movie and we're on her side. She's not really interested in it, and we kind of enter the ring for the first time with her. Something that she'd also told me was that her brother dressed up as a pink Power Ranger in order to get in the ring with her and sort of disguise the fact that he was a boy. In theory, it was supposed to be a girls' match. So that was also born of uh, of a real story I did a lot of research with the family before I started writing the script because I didn't know anything about wrestling when this project began and um, so I wanted to sort of you know understand how it all works and I spent time visiting their actual waw wrestling matches up in Norwich and seeing them perform and so the the ring and the kind of vibe of these early matches we see in the movie are emulating the, the, the real vibe I saw when I went up to Norwich And there's my little uh, homage to uh, Kubrick's 2001, where the ape throws a bone that becomes a spaceship. Um, I think he covered millions of years in that cut. I uh, I covered about five years, so... Um, there you are, a little, little nod to the master. And uh, we are enjoying Motley Crue's wild side. Uh, I'm, not, I'm a little bit confused, actually. I don't know, is this an instrumental version of this song, or... I think the original's got lyrics, or maybe it's just instrumental sections from the song. I can't remember, but... Uh, you know, just wanted um, some music that seemed to capture the vibe of the family. They're obviously, you know, kind of got that kind of rocky look with the tattoos and the mohawks and the grungy vibe and the rock vibe. So um, it seemed like we had something that was kind of in your face right off the top. And um, the four actors are doing line share with wrestling here. There's some sort of stunt doubles, for instance, there. That backflip is not something that Jack himself is doing. That is actually done by uh, Ricky Beavis Jr., who is one of the Knight family clan. And there's a woman called Tessa Blanchard, who is a wrestler, who stands in here for Florence to do that big leap. But um, where possible, the family, the um, actors playing the family are doing as much of the wrestling as they can. The project actually began life as a documentary. Oh, just worth mentioning there, we've obviously setting up this big kind of roar that... Page always does, which uh, is obviously going to be important when she gets to her final TV appearance at the end of the movie. Obviously, it's pretty it goes without saying really that there's a lot of work we're we're doing here at the beginning just to kind of set up certain elements uh, that were that are going to become important later. Her relationship uh, and love for her brother, the um, sort of family dynamic, the the roar, uh, even sort of musically some of the um, little motifs that will be featured throughout the film. Well, as I say, the, the project began when um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson saw a documentary on, on British TV. It was on Channel 4, he was in a hotel room, he couldn't sleep one night, and he was watching TV. On comes this documentary about this crazy wrestling family. He was from a wrestling family himself, so I think he felt an affinity with them and, and, and a lot of their experiences of, you know, playing these tiny venues and here we are them leaving Great Yarmouth was something that he kind of related to. He'd had similar experience. And uh, he thought there might be a sort of Rocky-style underdog movie at the core of it, and um, teamed up with a producer called Kevin Michaud who he'd worked with before. And someone on the line, my name came up as a potential writer-director, I think in part because I'd worked with Dwayne before on a movie called Tooth Fairy, we were just actors in that. But we had a good rapport and we'd hit it off. And he sent me the documentary, and I wasn't terribly excited by the idea, but when Dwayne Johnson sends you something, tasks you with something to do, then you do it. And I watched this documentary and I just fell in love with this family and I just loved the uh, the dynamic and the relationship between them and um, this dream they have. There's Jack Loudon there just turning away as he's trying to cover the fact he's laughing at one of Nick Frost's improvs. As Jack says, he does a lot of that, <laughs> does a lot of backting in the movie, turning away, just to avoid uh, the audience seeing him giggling. Here we are in the real Norwich, flying. But, like I say, I saw the documentary, fell in love with the family, went to visit them, hung out with them in Norwich, and it seemed to me that what was appealing about the story was that it wasn't really about wrestling. It was about so many other things, about ambition, about family, about brothers and sisters, about loneliness. It just seemed to have a lot of meat on the bone, and I kept thinking of it in, like, movies like uh, Billy Elliot. It's not really about uh, ballet, even though the young boy wants to be a ballet dancer, it's it's really about all kinds of other things. And so that was sort of a, a good model for this film, alongside 2001 <laughs> by Kubrick. A brief note here on the music score, because um, I'm very, very pleased with it. I think Vic Sharman, the composer, did a great job. And it was an enormous draw because we had Graham Coxon of the band Blur, as well, doing a lot of the guitar work. And um, the um, remit that I gave Vic was the family themselves are very sort of DIY. You know, the, the ring is held together with bits of tape and sort of, you know, spit and sawdust venues that they play. And they, of course, like I say, had a very kind of a grungy, rock and roll, punky vibe to them physically. And so I just thought that, you know, to try and have a kind of a music score that was very overblown and, you know, lots of strings and, um, you know, and trumpets and whatnot just wouldn't be right. Just wouldn't kind of sit right with the, with the vibe of the family and with their sort of little low rent operation. And so um, we talked a lot about what music would fit and a kind of punky, guitar-y, rough and ready vibe seemed right to me. And um it was not until we actually got into it that we realized actually it's quite hard to score a movie with just the classic punk instruments, guitar, drums, bass. It doesn't give you a lot of musical range. So perhaps as we'll see as the movie goes on, you know, I I allowed Vic to use a few other instruments here and there. But on the whole he he kind of stayed to that template and he just sort of worked within that musical remit.
0: Isn't he in jail? <clears throat> you should come tonight, it'll be really fun. We don't like wrestling. How do you know if you've never been? I've never had rectal bleeding before, but I'm pretty sure I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> How about I shove her head up your ass and then we can find out?
1: Oh, one thing I forgot to mention as we were passing by, is that little foot chase where Zach is, is chasing Ez was actually much, much longer in the uh, original cut. The uh, counsellors say they ran through someone's uh, house in the front door, ran past this uh, family and jumped out the window. And the family in the house were actually uh, Paige's real mum and dad, but I had to cut them out for the purposes of time. So I'm obviously a little bit nervous showing the film to the parents for the first time. They are a wrestling family. The father himself admits to having been in and out of jail three times before the age of 21, mainly for violence, as he says. So a little bit jumpy about letting them know that I had cut them out of the movie, but um, my legs are still intact, so they obviously dealt with it. A number of points, people often ask me, you know, how much of this is true and how much have I made up? And obviously, they often ask, is the training of a blind kid a true story? That That is one of the things which the real Zach told me and which he actually did do. Snap man. Lovely stuff. Okay, Stitcher. And this sort of motley crew of the, as I called them in the script, the strays, these local kids from the neighborhood, some of these are um, real kids wrestlers from the WAW, the real WAW in Norwich, and some of them are actors. Uh, from my oh. A number of um, parents have complained to me that if they took their kids to see the movie, they had the question when they got home, what is a stiffy? <laughs> Which, you know I, don't know, I don't know what the polite answer is to that. But, you know, a kid's got to learn at some point. That's how I feel about it. No. This is uh, one of the only times where we got to do a, a kind of a one-er, as they say. I think this is the first time we cut here before, since we entered the gym. The movie was, uh, was a very tight uh, shooting schedule. We needed about five weeks prep. We had, I think, two months to shoot on both sides of the Atlantic. And so it was um, a really very tough shoot. And so we didn't have a lot of time to do those more elegant, refined shots like, you know, the elaborate tracking shots or wonners. We sort of, um, we had to shoot a lot of it kind of guerrilla style uh, on the hoof as we went. Some locations we didn't even see until the morning we arrived at them. Not an ideal way to make a movie. This scene was inspired by the fact that I watched a lot of old YouTube clips of um, Ricky Knight and the family wrestling, and they do this sort of thing. They throw bowling balls in each other's groins. They, uh, groons, which is uh, the Norwich way of saying it. They hit each other with dustpan lids. They throw, you know, tacks on the floor. They hit each other with road signs. They thwack each other around the head with fluorescent, Lighting strips, it's pretty mad, some of what they do. And so um, it seemed like a fun way to introduce that idea into the film, and also set up this idea that they're kind of living hand to mouth a little bit. You know, the family is struggling and that this idea of the WWE is this kind of, this great dream it is all the more meaningful because, um, you know, cash is tight.
0: Just a nice clean headlock, straight in the position. Understood? Yes, Kyle. Great, okay. All right, Carl, you getting in then, mate? Oh, no, thanks. I just come here for the smells. You're a teenager and you're blind. What else are you going to do today? Listen to porn? <laughs> Callum! 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 Callum. Yeah. Go. Yes, Callum! Are you serious? How's he going to wrestle? No idea. What did we do last night, babe? 400. Bloody oh hell. If things don't pick up soon, I'm going to have to go back to thieving. I don't care how desperate things get. You're not going back to thieving. You're not... Zach. There's
1: certain uh, right. phrases and words in the movie which I feel like the American audience don't always pick up on. I'm sure that going on the game, I'm not sure that that's, uh, that's well-known to American audiences. I quite like the idea of them just sitting there. I have no idea what that means. Yeah. Huh. Great. Down, down, down. A lot of this whole opening sequence is obviously setting up the world of the Knight family, where they live, the uh, the sense of their environment, this training school, all of which is true. You know, I actually in the original script had long sequences that were really entertaining to me about Zach meeting his wife and romancing her and the way that the family screwed around like he said They he invited her down to a wrestling match to try and impress her and and he was supposed to go on a date with her straight after and they found his underwear while he was still in the ring and they put a load of deep heat in the crotch of his underpants so that when he pulled them on it just basically warmed up and set fire to his balls that's the kind of loving family that he's from and that seemed like a funny scene and i for ages tried to cram that in but there was never really a time for it i just uh it seemed like there was all these amazing digressions that I could go on in the script and I think the first draft was probably hundreds of pages long as so I was trying to crowbar all of this in and you know, so much of what we ended up having to do was cut out the stuff which just wasn't feeding the story and serving the story.
0: Big enough to get Courtney up the daft. Ugh, that is gross. Look, for Courtney's sake, let's all just try and act a little bit normal. Right. Okay. Dad. Yes, I will behave. Thank you
1: there you are there's the money shot there's the big guy uh this again born from meeting the real family talking to them they told me that this happened they they met the parents of Zach's girlfriend and um they were much more middle class and as you as you might say ordinary and uh this that th- they met them and um Julia the real mother said in fact I didn't even I didn't include this because I thought this would seem too extreme but Julia, the real mother, told me that she, in order to break the ice with the other mother, just uh, welcomed her in the front door, took her coat and then grabbed her boobs. Hiya! Um, <laughs> but I thought that would seem too extreme. Some great noodle eating there um, by the big dog. When you got people like Lena Headey and Florence Pugh and The Rock in a movie, you, you need someone who can add a bit of glamour. That's why I cast myself and my moustache. Into- this scene, I think, in the original cut was... 10 or 15 minutes long. There was a lot of improvising on the day. There's a lot of funny people in that room and everyone was trying to make everyone else laugh and we went on all kinds of digressions. But obviously when the first cut of the movie came in and it was two and a half hours long, some things had to go and this was one of them. But um, although there's a, you know, a lot of fun to be had with this uh, two very different groups of people meeting, It was also a a very useful way of answering questions which the non-wrestling audience would have, like me. When I I got into this, I didn't know anything about wrestling. I had to do a lot of research. Wanted to make a film that appealed to both wrestling fans and non-wrestling fans. And there are all sorts of things that you wonder. For instance, you know, the big question, obviously, is, is it fake? And as someone says there, it's, uh, it's not fake, it's fixed. And, you know, having the parents of Zach's girlfriend come into this environment it allows us to sort of explain certain parts of their backstory it allows to introduce introduces them to the world of wrestling and thereby um introducing the audience who perhaps don't understand any a lot of this stuff i kept thinking about my mother what would my mother understand i'm not sure she even knows who Dwayne johnson is let alone what the wwe is so it felt like there was lots of questions to ask you know how do they get started what does it mean to them what is the wwe and so this, a lot of this sequence here is, is just trying to do a lot of that work and explain to the audience, you know, exactly what this dream is, become even more pronounced in the next scene. Here's where they get the good news.
0: Yeah, sure, okay. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> I told you, I
1: told you, it was a given. I think in reality, it's actually a family friend who um, put them in touch with W.W. or helped kind of broker the deal, as it were, uh, to get them the audition. This little montage, again, just designed to, again, explain to the non-wrestling fan, someone like my mum, just how big uh, this organization is, that the huge audiences, the sort of superstar performers. The kind of women that they normally hire—these sort of blonde, statuesque women—and so this is just, you know, we're, we're as much introducing this world to the audience as much to to me and Julia Davis's characters.
0: For a rest, though, don't get bigger than the WWE. And to be WWE champion, oh, it's the pinnacle. Okay, it's it's something that we have wished for since we first stepped in the ring. And Zack's got it all worked out. We'd get a big villa in Florida. With a nursery, of course, nice big playroom, swimming pool. I'll live next door so I can babysit whenever. Or when they <laughs> come
1: back to superstars, we'll have full houses every night. We'll be shifting a ton of merchandise. You should buy shares in this. <laughs> no, seriously, I've got the paperwork here if you want to have a gander. But
0: not now. Oh. Do you think you're likely to get
1: in? Will he get in? I've been training this one since before we had fun. Once again, me and Julia Davis as the parents just asking questions that just help bed in all this information that you're going to need to know if you're not a wrestling fan. The dreams of the family and the kids, what it all means to them if the kids get into WWE. And then um, we sort of take a, a, a sideways turn as we start talking about the other brother, stepbrother Roy. No, no, he's Again, all based on... Real stories they told me, and the family themselves—the real family—are have had a troubled past, and I tried not to shy away from that in the story. I didn't want to paint them as saints. You know, they have. There's been um, violence in their past, and addiction, and all kinds of issues. But wrestling is something which they talk about, like other people talk about religion. It kind of saved their lives. And it seemed important to me to make it clear just how important wrestling is, particularly if you, like me, just initially approach it like, I don't, I'm do not i not interested in this thing, and it just seems so silly. The more you understand how much it means to them, I think the more you invest in the family and you're caring and rooting for them. This was shot up off uh, Britannia Road in the Real Norwich. That is actually the rear of the Real Norwich prison in the background. And this was a, an area of Norwich where The real Julia told me she would often walk and take the kids, give them a little bit of a a a run around. Makes them sound like dogs, but, uh, yeah, she would take them up here. And so I thought it was nice that we actually could take uh, our actors up there as well and, you know, put them in situ where the real family had spent a lot of time. And from there, you can see views of the city itself. Norwich is actually quite a pretty town, at least in the center of it. And the Knight family's world is, is a little less gentrified and beautiful. So I tried not to show too much of the kind of old Norwich because I wanted to to make it clear that, you know, the family themselves are coming from, for want of a better phrase, the, the wrong side of the tracks. Nice bit of Graham Coxon guitar work to take us to the O2 in London and um, we actually uh, managed to shoot backstage at the O2 so here they are wandering around uh, backstage at the real O2 and then because of Dwayne Johnson's availability we sort of had to we're suddenly we've jumped now we're actually uh, in a stadium in uh, Southern California somewhere and uh, throughout this sequence we're sort of we're jumping on both sides of the Atlantic so much of the film was us grabbing moments when we could to try and shoot within the real WWE world. So they had an event at this uh, stadium, like I say, in Southern California, we, we zipped down there. And I think they, we, they would kind of gave us 20 minutes or half an hour to jump into the stadium while they were setting it up and allow us to poach these shots. It just gives a nice sense of scale. And uh, here's the big guy. Bear me Dick me dead, bury me pregnant. In the in the British version, they say uh, Dick me dead, bury me pregnant three times, but in America we were allowed it twice. Lucky you. Yeah, Zach.
0: Zach. Yeah. It's my sister, Saraya. We're huge
1: fans. Thank you so much. Since we're kids.
0: Yeah, we've been fans since you had hair.
1: Oh, thank you. Hey, it's a choice. a damn good one too. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, yeah, it, it's looks good. Great. yeah. It
0: great. Fantastic. So guys, rock, rock, rock. Nope. What's happening? Are you getting back in the ring? Are you wrestling again?
1: Uh, so yes, here's the big guy, a producer, and I went to WrestleMania with the real Dwayne and got a real sense of you know the size and scale of of uh, what the WWE is, and we talked about you know whether there was a a place for Dwayne in the story. I think for a moment he considered the idea of playing the Vince Vaughn role as this kind of washed-up wrestler, but as someone who was so iconic within the world of wrestling, that didn't seem to quite make sense to me because he'd be playing a character, and given that he actually was involved with Paige's real life, and he did um, meet her backstage at various events, it just seemed right and proper that he should play himself, and also it feels like you needed someone who could be the sort of the the example of of what the ultimate wrestling success story is right he's kind of it's like he steps down from mount olympus and kind of bestows his patronage or his blessing or his insight uh, onto the kids and he just he serves that function uh, brilliantly here he is doing what they call in wrestling circles a promo i had written a kind of bad greatest hits version of Dwayne's promos, I'd just watched lots of YouTube clips and I'd kind of cobbled them all together in the script and he kind of looked at it and uh, went off in a corner and came back and just basically did this, which is <laughs> sort of extraordinary. No one can do The Rock like The Rock, no one can write The Rock like The Rock. And yeah, he just basically spat this out in one extraordinary take. So
0: that's how you win over the
1: crowd. And again, you know, there's so much to explain for the non-wrestling fan, including the fact, as he explains here, that the real victory of wrestling is less to do with the outcome of a match and more to do with, can you win over the audience? That's the thing which makes you a star. Even Dwayne himself in his early wrestling career wasn't a WWE fan favorite. It took him a little while to kind of find the thing which connected him with the audience. And so that seems such an important thing to explain, and that the way you talk on the mic, the way you do those promos is as much uh, what makes you a star as, as are you good in the ring.
0: Saying saying, come on, let's go. A w-
1: such a thrill to have Vince Vaughan in this movie. One of the films which was a big inspiration to me when I was younger, I guess in my late teens, early twenties, was his first film, Swingers which he had made with Jon Favreau, and it was a very low-budget film, him and a bunch of friends had sort of made this film drawn on their own experiences of dating in L.A., and I remember seeing it when I was a young film critic. I did film criticism for a couple of years, and I just remember thinking it was the first time I'd seen a film where I really thought, oh, maybe I could do this. It felt achievable in a way that so many other films which I admired just seemed beyond reach. And it was one of those moments where I thought, I actually, I don't think I can review films anymore. I think I actually want to make them. And so the fact that Vince agreed to be in this movie feels like the end of some kind of journey. And Vince was great. You know, he's famously good at improvising. But he's more than that. He um He's very, very smart. His notes on the script are terrific. He's really good at kind of identifying where the script can be improved, not just for his character, but all the way through. And he loves the script to be kind of solid and and uh, it to be agreed on, and then he will improvise on top of that. He's less keen on just walking into a room and just improvising. Not that he can't do it, but it's just I think he prefers to have the basis of the script and then to kind of riff on top of it. And so many of his best lines in the movie are ad-libs, improvs that Vince himself did, but based on the original script.
0: Miss, what's your name? Soraya. Uh, no, sorry, Brittany.
1: Do you not remember your name?
0: No, I do, it's just they, they asked me to change it. Do you remember what so... you changed it to? Yeah. Okay, that's good. What is it? Uh, Page, As a wrestling name.
1: And so a quick word about these two actors who I I think are just phenomenal. Florence Pugh was introduced to me by my casting director, Shaheen. I had not seen her earlier work uh, until Shaheen pointed me in her direction. I'd seen maybe 60 young actresses for this role. It was a very difficult role to cast. She needs, as in this scene, to have, you know, vulnerability, but in other scenes, great strength. She needs to have the charisma. She needs to be willing to jump in the ring. And um, It was a very, very tough role to cast. Like I say, I saw maybe 60 different actresses for that part, and Florence came in and she worked on the accent, she worked with Jack, who plays her brother, she uh, came in several times, and and yet, even then, you know, you're still, it's still a little bit of a gamble, you know, is this the right person for the role? You know, you needed a young actress, she wasn't hugely experienced, so it wasn't like she'd done anything like this before that could reassure us, but, um, my God, did we make the right choice. She is just Brilliant.
0: feels like the world just This
1: was a a moment I kept on struggling with explaining to the audience and to myself, like, what is it that is so appealing about wrestling? Why would you go through all of these hardships, all of these trials and tribulations? There has to be something about being a wrestler, being in the ring that is fundamentally important to you. And so this idea of her kind of talking about how it makes her feel like she belongs somewhere I was born from uh, long conversations I had with the real Page. I spent ages on the phone talking to the real Page, talking to the real family, talking to the real Zach. I would call them up when I was writing. Can you tell me how you felt here? Can you explain what was going on there? Um, just, to, you know, just to give me a sense of, of what the appeal is of this, what on the surface seems a very bizarre occupation. These are all British wrestlers who we pulled in for this, and we basically uh, had them just improvise um, a, a tryout session, and then we just had the cameras rolling, really, and we would just throw them in and just keep the cameras going and try and get as much of this sort of uh, tryout section as possible. Again, once again, just love uh, Graham Coxon's guitar on the soundtrack and Vic's work there. Just got a nice kind of funkiness to this, just to. ...to help bed in the idea that brother and sister are a real unit when they're working together. There's a kind of fluidity to the music and, and to their wrestling together.
0: Finisher. Is that your move? Yeah, Zach attack. Oh, she
1: did. So, in reality, Paige and her brother auditioned, I think, twice. And he, I think may have even auditioned three times in the end. But obviously you know, how many times am I going to show you them trying out? So, I obviously, I had to make certain creative decisions throughout the real-life story, just for the purposes of brevity, really. I think Paige got actually selected on her second attempt, and Zach was rejected each time. And, you know, again, in the original script, we saw Zach preparing for his second audition and him going through it again and him being rejected again. But in part because of, uh, you know, the, it just being too long, but also just it, it just felt so cruel to keep seeing this poor guy suffer like this. I mean, it, it was tough enough uh, to portray, you know, how low he gets when he does get rejected in the finished movie. So the idea that we would just keep seeing him get rejected just felt too painful to watch, and so we just compressed it into this one tryout. You
0: have to take my brother. Excuse me. No one deserves this more
1: than Zach. Why didn't you pick him? 99% of the people don't get picked.
0: He was running rings around those other guys.
1: So here we are outside the real O2. We'd actually hired a venue in the O2 for another sequence that we'll, we'll shoot later. And I found it It led all the way out to the back of the O2 arena itself and got these amazing vistas of the city. And so, uh, you know, it's not like we hired the entire O2, we just... By sheer good fortune, we, we hired this other little venue where we did some of the wrestling stuff.
0: Coach, she wants this. Don't listen to her. Raya, let's just leave it. Come on. Five. Rhea. Four. You're not just doing this for you, Rhea, are you? You're doing it for the family. Three. Two. Yeah, OK, I want this. See you in Florida.
1: This was a scene I was very pleased with because it felt like this was the real first moment in the film where we move from comedy and a sort of more light-hearted vibe to something much more dramatic. And, you know, a lot of people know this part of the story when they sit down to watch it, so it's not a shock for them. But in some of the early... Test screenings of the film, where people were less familiar with the story and they hadn't seen the trailer, in which that moment is given away, it was exciting. You just felt this kind of audible gasp when the audience realised that the brother had got rejected, and and so that is for me the real core of this story. That was featured in the documentary on on which the whole thing was based, and you know, in the documentary, I'd sat down and I guess I was slightly laughing at this crazy family, and and then the moment where Zach got got turned down, I was just absolutely heartbroken for him. And then I was really invested in this family, in this story, and what happened next. And so, you know, we've spent, you know, quite a long time in the movie so far, introducing you to the family, spending time in Norwich, getting you to understand how tight brother and sister are and what this dream of WWE means so that this moment will have that impact and then that will really spin us off now into the into the rest of the film. This was the first time I allowed Vic to introduce a little bit of piano into the music. So you get a little whiff of piano, but I don't really allow him to use piano again until the very end of the film because it's just always that risk that it just sounds a little bit too sentimental and I didn't want the film to feel kind of mawkish or too cosy or too... Like I was pulling on the heartstrings too explicitly. I wanted it to kind of creep up on you. Suits you, that. I had this real concern through much of the scripting and filming that you always felt Paige was only doing this for her family and it was so important to me that you knew she wanted this dream as well and so... Moments like that where she looks in the mirror and she pictures herself with the the cardboard belt that she's made as a kid. It just, I think I just, got end, I just shot endless scenes of her doing that because I was just terrified people were gonna be like, why does she even care? She's just doing it for a family. And that the victory at the end wouldn't count for anything. And it's um, one of those things you sometimes worry about unduly when actually the audience gets it and you don't need to fret. The audience is often ahead of you.
0: Your sister's going to America. Yeah, I know. Just can't get out of it. It's fine. fine. Again,
1: another moment based on meeting the real family and the real Zach telling me that on the day she left for America, he, through a mixture of jealousy and bitterness and envy and emotion and sadness and love, he couldn't face going to the airport to see her off, so he kind of found excuses not to go with her. And so we recreated that. Good luck
0: with it all. Good luck with the baby. Yeah, yeah, cheers.
1: Just a little word here on the location. I was very, very pleased with the location that our location manager found for this, because I, for some reason, I'd given her this remit that I really wanted a a semi-detached house behind which you could see a pylon. For some reason, I'm very obsessed with houses and pylons. I don't know why that is. It's just, there's something about the idea of living near a pylon that seems unsettling to me somehow, that sort of the the electricity or whatever's in it is somehow gonna infect the house. I don't know, for some reason, it suggests a certain socioeconomic position if you live near a pylon. And so she just came back with these photos, and there it is. There's the pylon in the background. This was a scene which was very emotional and very effective in the original documentary, the documentary team. Max Fisher was the director, he actually went down to the uh, Heathrow or Gatwick, wherever it was, and and sort of filmed them as they sent Paige off to America. And it was a a very sort of pivotal scene in the documentary, and one which I wanted to recreate because there's something about the sort of mixed emotions that mum and dad have. You know, they're sending off their daughter, they want her to go, they're encouraging her to go, there's a little bit of the stage parents in them. But at the same time, they are sending their 18-year-old daughter 4,000 miles away. And so it was very upsetting to them. And the only thing I left out, really, was that in the documentary, Ricky, the father, cries. And I thought, well, I should probably save the tears until the very end of the film if he cries here. I think he's cried a little too early. This was actually shot not at Heathrow, but um, in the sort of atrium of Wembley Stadium bizarrely it's much easier to film there it turns out and make it look like an airport than it is to film at an actual airport and so we just uh digitally added this aircraft but other than that that's Wembley and boom we're in Florida and I was very pleased with that cut I love the fact that we go from sort of gray England to sunny Florida I wanted this moment to feel sort of like Dorothy landing in Oz in The Wizard of Oz. Suddenly everything goes technicolor. If we've been in kind of slightly overcast England, then boom, look, here we are in kind of sunny, glowing Florida. In actual fact, Florence there is driving around downtown LA, and then I went separately to Florida to grab these extra shots. And most of the time I was there, it was hurricane season, and so it was gray and overcast. And I was able to grab like one or two moments where the cloud lifted and we were able to get some of that sunny Florida light. And in fact, the real page was down there and I actually uh, got her in the cab at one point and I was shooting over her shoulder so she could be her own double. She could actually double for Florence, which I thought was kind of cool. But um, unfortunately, that was on one of the really grey, overcast days and so I couldn't end up using it, which was annoying. And then we're in LA now for more of that bright, orangey, American sunshine. Me and um, Remy, the DP, it was just a conversation we'd had early on that we wanted a big contrast between America and England, we wanted it to seem like it, it uh, had size and scale and color in the way that the WWE, for British wrestlers, has that same sheen and sort of corporate polish. And that even though on the surface it seems like Paige has got everything she wanted, she's got this Apartment and this swimming pool and this bright sun, actually, she's going to be more alone there in all of that warmth than she ever was at home. I am so jealous of you right now. And so, whether it's her interaction with these girls or here when she enters her apartment, even though the apartment's perfectly pleasant, perfectly nice, there's just something kind of a little sterile about it, a little bit cold. And it turned out it was not going to be feasible for us to actually film at the real nxt performance center in florida so we recreated it and i think um our production designer nick palmer did a great job of of constructing this actually in east london this is actually part of the uh that complex which they built for the olympics in east london and there was a lot of these sort of big empty rooms that were sort of waiting for a new occupancy and we managed to grab one of those. It turns out it's very hard to find a, a big new room or building in London that, was, uh, that had the, enough size and scale that you can actually fit wrestling rings in it. Um, and it was a real tough find. So this is actually not Florida, this is London, and we're just blasting a lot of light in the windows to try and give you the illusion that it is.
0: That makes it all
1: stop. The horn was a play on the bell which the Navy SEALs have to ring if they want to quit their training, as seen in the uh, Demi Moore film G.I. Jane. It just seemed... Uh, I was using all kinds of reference points for these sorts of grueling tryouts. Uh, there's obviously a lot of s- sporting ones, but obviously a lot of military movies like Officer and Gentleman and G.I. Jane. and. Um, uh, it was important to me to, to show you how grueling the WWE training is. It's it's very tough, and they really put you through it. And even though there's a fakery and an art- artistry and a you know an artificiality to a lot of it, there is also a real uh, athleticism, and they really put you through the machine. This is a little song that me and Vic and Graham Coxon wrote. Ain't going back. It turned out it was cheaper for us just to write a little song to have them sing along to in the car than to actually pay for a, a real song. So we wrote a tune called Ain't Going Back. So I've now got songwriting credits with both Graham Coxon of Blur and Mr. David Bowie. A story for another time.
0: Take the risk.
1: But yeah, just dipping back and forth between brother and sister. Again, she's still, uh, to all intents and purposes, in this this sort of paradise of sunshine and sheen and gloss. But um, obviously having a tough time of it. ...without her brother who was always her kind of support network and the assumption had always been that they would do this whole project together so not having him there push it, push it up. was uh, was not something she was counting on
0: on break their neck you'll give me a shit ton of paperwork I hate paperwork I can barely write paperwork.
1: in actual fact Paige's whole time at the NXT I think spanned I want to say sort of two or three years Oh, that's uh, Paige's real sister there. She, this family seems to go on forever. <laughs> that was her real sister. And there seems to be all kinds of relatives that we tried to throw in the film where we could. But yeah, Paige's real time at the NXT was much longer. And, and as wrestling fans know, there is also a, a, a sort of, some of the NXT has its own structure and there are belts and there are titles. And Paige actually went up the scale and won the kind of NXT championship belt. And the reason I kind of didn't try to cover all of that in the film was firstly because we've only got 100 minutes, but also just it's very complicated for the non-wrestling audience to understand all the different levels and layers of WWE. And so I just decided it was simpler to just focus on the training side of things, which is what NXT does, and not worry so much about the fact that it has its own infrastructure, it has its own fan base, it has its own performances and its own it's sometimes it's even televised. That just seemed overly complicated. And so I just uh, tightened time up a little bit here. Otherwise I feel like it will be endless montages of her of just, you know, six months later, three weeks later, and just to show the sheer amount of time that this covered.
0: Let's put it together. Let's keep it one. Of course. My name is Augustus Heights. Augustus? Augustus Heights. Are you a polo player? Uh,
1: no. You're gonna come out in full polo garb. Very pleased with uh, this little scene between Vince and Augustus Heights. That's uh, a real wrestler. I think that is even his real name. And we, I just had everyone kind of improvise with Vince and then just used the best bits. And so that was Vince just giving this real guy. A tough time, and uh, I even got some of the other women and some of the other guys just to create their own kind of wrestling promos, and, and had them come out and had Vince sort of tear them to shreds. But as always, couldn't include it all; had to keep on story. I
0: love it. Yeah. When I heard it 20 years ago, those are like lines you could. And so
1: again, Vince here betting in something very important. We'd already set the seed with the uh, Dwayne scene early on, but it's, again, just an important reminder that so much of what makes you a success in this WWE world is can you win over the crowd? Can you speak on the mic? Can you share a piece of who you are? Can you dial yourself up to 100 and, and say something authentic which the audience connects with? And so, again, there's, just, there's a lot of work that you have to do, which I find very tough just trying to explain all of this to the, again, the non-wrestling audience. The wrestling fans know this, but to people like my mum, who have no idea, you know, what is important in this world? Here we are, a cage match, not unlike the ones that the real Zach does. Um, so often with his own family. This is the real Roy Knight, who is in the ring here with Zack. And Jack, who plays Zack, was understandably anxious about getting in the ring with the real Roy, who's a, a lovely man, but a clearly tough guy. <laughs> And uh, I was trying to get the Knight family in whenever I could. Go for Hodge. So a word on Jack Loudon, I had, uh, like Florence, I had not seen Jack before, and Shaheen, our casting director, sent me tapes with various guys on, auditioning for the part, and there was just something about Jack that, aside from being a terrific actor, he has a warmth, a sensitivity, a vulnerability, which seems so important to this character because Really, from this moment on, he's he's going to get pretty bitter and pretty mean. He's going to treat his sister very poorly. And I needed someone that would carry the audience with him, that you'd still be rooting for him, even as he got into a darker, more depressed headspace. And I just thought Jack had that. There's a, a sweetness and a sensitivity to him. But the thing that unnerved me was seeing him on the tape, he, he, was, he was quite thin and he didn't have the kind of... I mean, the real Zach is a big dude. And so... As soon as we hired Jack, we threw him into a quite a brutal training regime and he had to start eating um, as much pasta and as many Big Macs as he could just to bulk up. We got him into a, a CrossFit training program as we did with Florence uh, to just give him a bit more bulk and a bit more size. But I think as you can see in this scene, he's just a terrific actor. And I just think he, he conveys here that, that, that bitterness, that frustration that the real Zach had, feeling rejected and... You know, he had built his dreams, he had been led to believe he was going to be a wrestling superstar. Why wouldn't he be, you know? Uh, He was the star of his family's outfit, and the idea that he, it was never going to happen for him was very, very tough and very cruel.
0: I'm so sorry. Are you okay? You're supposed to pull it.
1: Once again, this is all born of stuff which the real Paige had told me about things like the receipt, which is something that her own brothers used on her when they were teaching her to wrestle. You give someone a receipt to sort of teach them a lesson.
0: Yeah, no, I know wrestlers that are paralyzed from mistakes.
1: Although I did a lot of research with. Paige and with her brother and with the real family, it was also important to me that I go to the real NXT and speak to some of the other women that Paige worked alongside, trained alongside and some of her trainers. And she had very much presented her time in Florida as a time where she felt very alone and she felt bullied by the other girls. And I went to meet some of these other girls and they said, well, yeah, but sometimes Paige was the bully. And that really opened my eyes to something. I thought, well, of course, you know, she's this lonely woman. She's Raised in a tough family, she's been doing this since she was 13, and WWE do recruit uh, women from all kinds of backgrounds, sometimes they are former dancers or cheerleaders or models, who don't have that experience, and they don't have that sort of uh, rough-and-tumble background, and so they're gonna feel sometimes bullied by Paige. And so it was sort of important to me that we show that there were sort of two sides to the story, really, And, and... I wanted to kind of play with the audience's expectations. The assumption is that these other three women are these mean girls and they're just there for their looks, which is Paige's assumption, as it was in real life. And that, as we'll see later, actually, no, these are just other women with dreams and lives and, you know, we could make a film about any one of them. I'm sure they have interesting stories of their own, but we're only seeing things through Paige's eyes. And so it sort of was playing both with, you know, her expectations, but also hopefully with the audience's expectations of just movie convention leads you to assume that these are mean girls but in actual fact um they're just people trying to make a living like anyone else
0: to do it. what's your competition like
1: hmm. again another moment inspired by the documentary there's lots of scenes in the documentary of Thanks, Mom. paige speaking with her family on skype and you know, just sat again in the, it just really struck me watching the documentary of her sat in this perfectly lovely but slightly sterile apartment and you know being four thousand miles from home and You can see your family, but they're not there. You don't have the support network that you always assumed you would have. And so you're starting to feel more isolated.
0: Who's that? It's you, isn't it? You. Who's making them?
1: I think this was actually a a scene which was born out of a good note which Film 4 had in developing the script. They said, well, you know, how are the family trying to exploit Paige's success? And that led to a bit of of fun, just a bit of fun with... uh, And then running a sweatshop, which is not a million miles from the truth, you know, the the family are always hustling, they're always trying to find ways of making money. And for a while they started running a burger van, which they would park outside their gigs. So it didn't seem a big stretch that they would, uh, you know, they would try and take advantage of Paige's growing reputation. Versus the WWE. Nick Frost, Lena Headey, I mean, I just I don't think anyone was expecting them to have the chemistry which they have. The real Julia and the real Ricky are wonderfully still in love and are very kind of tactile with each other, and there's a lot of sort of passion, and they're quite happy to talk about, you know, their sex life with you. And uh, I'm very proud of it. And so, you know, I wanted a, a couple that could kind of recreate that really, and you know. Nick is a wrestling fan, one of the only sort of members of the key uh, core cast who was a pre-existing wrestling fan and knew a lot about it and was very keen to jump in the ring. And I mean, I was thrilled to have him because obviously he's so funny, but also he's warm and you're sort of, you know, you're on his side. But also I think there's a sort of toughness to him that was perhaps untapped. And I think you see that in moments in the film, that kind of steeliness, which was great. The real Ricky actually wanted Ray Winston to play him in the movie. And I had to uh, break it to him that... um, that I wanted to go with Nick Frost and Lena Headey. Similarly, if people know her from Game of Thrones, you know it was not um, the obvious casting choice for her to play this sort of dirt under the fingernails, rough and tumble, blue collar wrestling mum. But she had heard about the documentary, she had seen it, she had heard about the script. She was willing to come down and audition, which is not something that Lena needs to do. But she wanted to convince me she was the right person, and, and um, I think she does a terrific job. I think both of them are just so adorable as the parents and believable at the same time.
0: At least you're not dancers.
1: I'm... Once again, just, you know, again, having to bed in this idea that, you know, Paige has big assumptions about these women, which will hopefully explode later on. So here we are. This is... uh, We're back at the real-life London O2. This is a a sort of nightclub that's in the grounds of the O2. And this was the uh, venue that we'd hired which allowed us to sneak out the back. So these are all British people who've been encouraged to come down dressed as sort of uh, Floridians. And uh, they did a heck of a job. I mean, they, you know, with extras, you never quite know what you're gonna get because you can't audition them. And so, you know, this this 100 or so people came down and they really got into the swing of things. It was great. They just, they got into the whooping and the cheering and the booing and they came dressed. And I think you buy that they're, they're some, they're part of some small venue in Florida and, uh, You know, some of them came down with cowboy hats, which is perhaps a little extreme, but there we are. I thought they helped really create a a terrific atmosphere for this sequence, which was quite heavily influenced by the scenes in the Eminem film, Eight Mile, where he sort of freezes on the mic. I just wanted to sort of, again, just to bed in this idea that so much of what makes you succeed is how well you perform on the mic. And if you can, then you're really in trouble.
0: What I say about Paige? I could say... And, uh, the other
1: women that we cast here, uh, this is Aquila Zoll. We have Kim Mutula in the blue. And um, Ellie Gonzalez is, is the other woman. Uh, again, they did not have wrestling training or wrestling experience, but they, like everyone else, they threw themselves into it. They worked on their own promos, they worked on their own kind of personas. We had this whole subplot where... Jerry Lynn, which is the girl in blue, her persona is that she's an escaped convict, <laughs> which was a really fun, with lots of great fun stuff which we couldn't end up using of her, how she'd killed a man and she was willing to kill again in the ring. Uh, they really helped, they really kind have developed these great personas, so much of which we couldn't use. But they formed a great sort of unit and um, they're not based specifically on any of the actual women that Paige came up with. I was quite keen to use where possible real wrestlers and and I I guess I was a little nervous about bringing in real wrestlers and, you know, could they act and play themselves and and would it sort of be confusing because they're real and Florence isn't and, you know, I I don't know. I just, it it seemed easier to me to have actors play these other people and and not to specify exactly who their real-life counterparts are but rather to kind of, you know, conflate them into some sort of made-up characters who are based on people that Paige worked alongside and that she told me about and similarly true of Vince Vaughn's character as well. She, Paige had a number of different trainers in real life and I didn't want to have sort of a handful of different trainers and I thought that would be confusing so I kind of, I met with some of the real ones and spoke to her about who had trained her and kind of conflated them into one person. again, yeah, very pleased with the the emotion and the music and the isolation of this sequence. And, you know, we're hitting a real Nadir here. I mean, I think for the real Zach, I think he would admit that he hit a real tough space here and got very depressed and went into a very dark headspace. And in the original script, this was even tougher and bleaker than it turned out to be. But um, we just discovered in the editing that a little goes a long way and we didn't need to dwell even more in, in his kind of sorrow. Hello, you've reached Zach. Please leave a message. This is all uh, done on a set that we built in London, and we've used a VFX outside the window, which I shot when I was in my rain-swept trip to Florida, which we stuck outside. The van is modeled on the real van. We, we took our production designer, we took the whole team up to Norwich, we, I took them to a WAW match. I wanted them to get, you know, a real sense of the sights and smells of of the gym and the van and the family home, all of which Nick Palmer and the costume designer, Matthew Price, and the hair and makeup person, Claire Whiteley, did to, uh, to sort of help recreate the, the looks, the vibes of the real kids, the way they dress, the way they, you know, carry themselves. There's something about the sort of noise of the wrestling environment that I wanted to sort of capture—you know, the the squeaking ropes and the and the boards underneath the mat and uh, the roar of the crowd—I just it was important to me to sort of evoke that and give you a feel of all of that stuff. Because that's one of the things you first notice when you go to a real wrestling match is just sort of how loud it is. It makes me sound like an old person complaining about rock and roll. It was so loud. And again, people, you know, of the questions I get asked, you know, how much did you make up for the purposes of the film? Did the real Paige change her hair and her uh, complexion? Well, yes, she did. Now, perhaps not to quite the extreme level that um, we did here, but she did have fake tan. She did let her hair go to a sort of blondier, mousier color in an attempt to fit in. I think that happened more during her initial tryouts for WWE as opposed to this moment in the story. But um, but again, all born from real stories that so nice. the real page told me. It's good to change it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. sometimes I want to do Love that. this line from Vince. Did someone break up with you? Just improvise that one. No. Kept it in there. He, I think he did about 10 different ones, <laughs> just, just came by, just did 10 different ad-libs, and we chose that one. Here I am. Managed to get a helicopter for a, half a day when I was in Florida. And again, this was a moment where the rains and the hurricanes stayed away. We managed to grab that shot. Here, though, we're shooting actually in um, Long Beach in California, which, again, was a nightmare. The, the weather was, uh, was brutal all the way through this shoot. We just kept on having terrible weather. And when we arrived at this beach, only having, can you believe it, one day to shoot this whole beach sequence, we got there, and it was just dense fog. You couldn't even see the sea. You couldn't see the beach. It was just a blanket of fog. I may as well have been shooting in Brighton or somewhere in England, or Great Yarmouth. I mean, I, I couldn't even see the the sand and the blue skies. And so, uh, you know, we just, we just had to start shooting. And uh, so there are one or two shots in this sequence that we actually shot in the fog when the girls are crawling underneath the... Uh, Orange tarpaulin thing that's uh, that you can just about see the sort of fog in the background, and then as we got to about lunchtime, the fog cleared and we were able to grab some of this stuff. Uh, There you can see, look, that's just white dense fog in the background, which I think we kind of fool you into thinking it looks like cloud or the sky. But yes, by this point the sun had lifted. But you know, some of these shots with Vince, we had to do sort of sky replacement because he's just there's just a blanket of fog behind him, and when you're on these sort of lower budget shoots you you can't just sit and wait for the right light you've just got to get shooting luckily i was able to persuade the money men to let me come back for a day later down the schedule so i was able to grab a few extra shots so some of this is done additionally um down the line but yes all of this stuff here is was shot in, in kind of just as the fog was lifting
0: come on how are you going to flip a girl 5 nights a week in a ring if you can't even flip And.
1: I really struggled I actually when we came back I actually shot a lot of additional stuff of the women climbing over heavy um sort of barricades and cuz I was worried that what they were making them go through wasn't tough enough cuz I was worried that other people who you know do a lot of working out would go well those tires are easy to flip and so I actually made these women come back and and go through it and I mean they had to keep doing these this obstacle course again and again and again and so I had, I had all kinds of stuff them climbing ropes and yeah. Lifting heavy weight bags and slamming them down, and all kinds of additional stuff. Which, once we got to our first cut, which was two and a half hours long, we realised we actually we didn't really need it after all. So I put these poor women through real arduous stuff, but they were just amazing. They just they threw themselves into it. I mean, I didn't. I don't think anyone ever complained. Florence had gone off with Jack to the NXT in Florida and actually learned to do some wrestling for real. So she did as much as she could, and um, everyone just threw themselves into it.
0: About you. I saw you. We weren't talking about. What, do you think you? I'm stupid? I've been sat right there just watching you. We're talking
1: about her. So as I mentioned before, this was that important moment to me to just you know, play on your expectations that these are just the the mean girls, and that actually if we had watched the movie from their perspective, they they were never talking about Paige. If they were, they were just saying, well, you know, why is she being so mean, and that these are just other people trying to make their dreams come true, and just because they happen to look a certain way, doesn't mean that they're um, they're out to get her. It's uh, obviously an attempt to take the character of Paige to the lowest depths before she ends up going back to Norwich. She would tell, uh, she would call her father, Skype with her father, you know, Several days a week, she told me, and please, can I come home? This is too hard. This is too tough. While she was out in Florida, the real page, she um, she had loads of money stolen from her. Someone kind of stole her identity and cleaned out her bank accounts. She got terribly sick and had to have an operation. Her mother flew out to kind of nurse her back to health. I mean, she had, uh, aside from just being lonely and and you know, on the on the kind of training trail, she. Uh, she, she had a tough time, and and again, lots of that was stuff I included early on in the first draft of the script.
0: Your brother's journeyman.
1: And this was another opportunity. I made a, my location scout go and find a typical American gas station with a big stretch of blue sky, because I figured, well, if we're going to shoot for a week in... California standing in for Florida. Let's at least get see the the giant John Ford style blue skylines because you know that's the stuff you you're not going to get if you're filming stuff in uh, Norwich or London. So I wanted to try and take advantage of this big open vista that you can get in America. Once again, of course, the weather was terrible. So either side of this scene is a grey, rainy storm. L.A. having some of the worst weather it had for years, obviously. Just our luck, we managed to grab these moments in between.
0: Why quit then? He wouldn't stop.
1: I think Vince does a terrific job here, you know? As I say, I've been a fan a long time, and so many of the real wrestling trainers, the ones that trained the real page and many of the the people that are still there now you know are people who have stories much like this you know they had their one shot at the big time in, either through injury or because they didn't go over with the crowd it never quite happened for them and some of them retire some of them get injured so badly that they they can never really wrestle again and and some of them go into the training world and this sort of uh this sort of tough love is something which they have to administer because if you can't cut it, you know you are going to be on the road five, six nights a week, and it's a tough life. The uh, life, even of a WWE superstar, you know they are on the road. It's kind of a, a circus-style life. You travel from town to town. are people are setting up the ring, and you are throwing yourself around. And so it, they have to really test your metal and see if you are cut out for it. And for the people that they don't think are going to make it, they have to get rid of them early on going to be full Round up love. There's a big buzz about the again. So I'm, uh, we uh, return to Norwich, and we're building to uh, this big showdown with Paige and her brother. There's my pylon again. Very pleased with that. The dog featured a lot more in the... Uh, in the original two and a half hour cut of the film. uh, I was obsessed with the dog and we'd have, you know, we'd endlessly spend time shooting the dog and giving him his own close ups. And unfortunately, uh, in the editing, he kind of, he slightly got waylaid. But that dog uh, matches the size and look of the real Knight family dog. Like I say, we tried to emulate their real house, their real gym, their real uh, sort of uh, events as much as possible. Back in Great Yarmouth, very pleased with the uh, Chris massacre. That was uh my invention. Here's some of the real w a w mob doing um throwing each other through ladders and things, which is something that they do. We brought some of them down from Norwich to shoot this. Hey, hey. brother and sister backstage. this is a um, shot in a place called the Mildmay Club, which is in London, which you'll find features in almost every British production that's ever made. It somehow pops up all the time. It's one of the sort of few working men-style clubs in and around London that's still there and still in kind of classic 60s, 70s vintage style. So it's perfect for these sorts of things. I think it's even featured in The Little Drummer Girl, which is another project which Florence did right after this. So she had the trapes back there, presumably, and shoot that. And uh, I think one of the only scenes in the film where we... uh, use French overs, as they say. I don't know whether the French are particularly fond of this kind of framing, where you're over people's shoulders in this particular way. But uh, yeah, this is the uh, the classic French over, as opposed to, I assume, the classic British over under, which is where you shoot from the front as opposed to their backs. I don't know. I'm not experienced enough in, in the world of overs to be able to tell you its origin story. A more experienced seasoned director, I'm sure, would have the answers there.
0: The unstoppable, the Love
1: these outfits. Mr. and Mrs. Well, it was originally Mr. and Mrs. Santa Claus, but for some reason, at some point, it's become Mr. Claus and a reindeer. I guess Lena (laughs) Lena was more excited about dressing up as a reindeer. I was very pleased with this scene, because, you know, we didn't... Like I say, I have a lot of pre-production time. The stunt coordinator and the uh, wrestling advisors had worked out these fights for us, and then the actors, you know, got thrown in and basically had to learn them like a a dance number. And, you know, we didn't have, like you might on a Rocky movie, you know, have days and days and days to shoot these. I mean, this was all shot in one day, and we had to go handheld with the cameras and, and really just kind of grab it and piece it all together and try and stay... Safe, so that no one injured themselves. It's obviously very dangerous. And and I think this sequence works very well because it, it's one of those things that you're always trying to do in movies, where the physicality and the movement of the scene is, is the thing which is telling you the emotion of the scene, right? And so brother and sister here are kind of battling in the ring, and, and we know it's really supposed to be a little choreographed, and they're supposed to be on each other's side, and they're supposed to be sort of helping each other out. Um, but now... Zach is going to take his bitterness and his frustrations out on his sister, and by allowing the, the fight and the thing they do for a living to kind of dramatize how they're feeling emotionally, it was very pleasing to me, and, it, and that is, for me, the, the most cinematic of the sequences in the film. If you, if you can express yourself physically and without having to use words, it's very, very satisfying. <laughs> Uh, I showed this movie to my parents and of course they just talked through this entire scene because my mum and dad are extras in this scene they are in the crowd there and so uh, I don't think you can quite see them but they uh, they just watched you know just openly talking in the in the screening oh there we yeah that was a hot day that was hot in there i mean it's supposed to be christmas there they are it's supposed to be christmas but it was in the summer and it was hot and we didn't and i we had to have pullovers on <laughs> just did their own running commentary while we were seeing the film for the first time there they are there's my dad screaming in a czech shirt but they love a bit of it there's a guy there dressed in a um snowman outfit which i think was even worse they were complaining about wearing having to wear a christmas pullover and there's a poor guy dressed as a snowman. The um pile driver which you saw there, which is where he appears to drop her on a her head, is actually a banned move in the WWE. I think only the Undertaker is allowed to do it now. It's a very very dangerous move because if you miss mistime it, you can actually break someone's neck, basically. So um that was another jumpy moment, and that was obviously not done by Jack and Florence. We had to get our our doubles in for that. But um I was just very pleased throughout this whole sequence. I just thought that the um the emotion of it and the and the drama of it and, and this being a real kind of pivotal moment in the story. I thought everyone just did a terrific job capturing this breakdown of the dynamic and that was why it was so important to just to bed in early on that this family unit is so tight and this I hope was a real contrast with that first family wrestling match we saw right at the top where they were just working in unison and it was much more kind of joyous in a way and more fluid and brother and sister were working as a team and now you know, everything's fractured.
0: Wait. You what? Ray, I'm confused. Is he, is he joking? No, I, I can't do it.
1: This was a scene no, I wake up. that just took a lot of getting right in, in the scripting because I didn't want her to seem like she was just whinging, and really it was right now, important to get a little, keep a little bit of the humor in. Get a Cat, I think was Nick's add-in, ad but was just, again, just keeping a little bit of levity in in an otherwise... Yeah, I a scene which which could have wound up feeling a bit EastEnders-y. Nothing wrong with East EastEnders, but... Well, clearly, I'm suggesting there is, so I don't know why I said that. I'm no good to be trying to backtrack now. But, um, anyway... <laughs>
0: I'm you
1: no, just very, very pleased with everyone's performance in this sequence. And this seemed sort of the crux of it, really, that the family the parents at least are living vicariously through their kids and you know it, it just struck me from the first moment I met them that it's odd that Julia's ring name is Sweet Soraya and then she named her daughter Soraya it's just I it just feels like in some way that must say something psychological
0: Ray Courtney rang it's
1: not come home. So now we're out looking for Zach, and we'd shot as much of the van travelling stuff, practically on a low loader, as they say, dragging people around these side streets. And then, because of the pressures of time, I, I couldn't do it for this scene. And so I just had them park up the van. It was at night by this point. And so this whole sequence is actually static the actors are in a static van and there's a couple of grips wobbling it slightly and then all of the sense of traveling and all of the stuff outside the windows and on the glass was all done by our special effects guys at union they did all of this and we had not prepared and prepped them for it we rather threw it in their lap and said look can you solve this problem and uh i think they did an incredible job i mean to try and do that you know, after the event, and, and take a completely static vehicle and make it look like it's travelling in that way. It was really impressive. And it's funny, with these smaller budget movies, you know, we don't have space battles and superheroes and uh, dinosaurs, but there's a lot of special effects work that is just there very subtly throughout the film, just to help paper over the cracks, things we, we couldn't make happen on the day, or mistakes we spotted once we got back in the editing when we were moving at such a pace, shooting so fast, that things get overlooked. And so there's a lot of stuff which the uh, special effects guys do that sort of is a bit unsung, really, but um, is vital to creating this world, making it feel believable. What? Are you, doing, mate? what? you just stuck your elbow out? No, I didn't. You call him in. And lot? again, this is all born from the real Zach telling me that you know after that rejection, he he spiralled a little bit, and uh, you know had gone kind of boozy nights out, and you know caused trouble. And it seemed uh, important to me to just, you know, again, we've, we've, hopefully, we've brought you in with some laughter up front in the movie, and, and now we're getting to the sort of the nadir of everyone's life, and, and it's a lot more dramatic. And I've tried to add just a, just a note of humour by having Cliff Richard's Mistletoe and Wine soundtrack this scene, but otherwise, it's actually a little homage to uh, the pool room scene in um, in uh, Mean Streets, Scorsese's Mean Streets, where they have a fight in a pool room, and kind of. Uh, Basically, I ripped it off, let's be honest, it's not an homage, I just ripped it off. It's it's and uh, again, this is a good example of where Nick Frost, I think, is able to, to tap into something a little bit more steely and kind of, and, and there's a sort of toughness to him, which is good, which I think, you know, is is like the real father, you know, he did do some jail time in his younger years. And so he's, he's you know, you see him now and he's like a a sweet sort of, you know, puppy dog, but but there's a, a toughness to him. and I think Nick captures that well. This was a scene which I had made Florence and Jack rehearse many times because I used this in the auditioning. And so, you know, Jack had auditioned with a lot of, you know, other women and Florence had auditioned several times for me with Jack and other guys. And so, you know, I wanted to see if they had, you know, brother, sister chemistry. And so I really had made them do this scene many, many times. And so I think by the time we actually got to shoot it, they were a little bit kind of tired of it. And I think it was difficult for them to kind of get back to something organic and something feeling fresh. But I think they do an exceptional job. This alleyway backs onto a row of shops. In fact, the same row of shops you see at the beginning of the movie when the kids are goofing around. And um, one of them was a fish and chip shop. And they had, they had some kind of uh, air conditioning unit that was sort of pummeling out a noise, a kind of awful, cacophonous, kind of metallic noise Aah! that was just there sitting there. So we couldn't shoot the scene because the noise was just unbearable. And so we went to the fish and chip shop. And we're like, could you switch off your air conditioning? And they said, no, we are not. we are not switching off the air conditioning unit until we have sold every last fish and every last chip. And There was not a lot of customers lined up and so we ended up buying all the fish and chips in this fish and chip shop and then just doling them out to passers-by cast and crew homeless people and the thing was every time we bought another cod lot they just put more fish and more chips in the deep fat fryer and basically we had to we had to buy all of their stock before they would shut off the aircon and let us shoot that scene I think our production designer, Nick Palmer, did a great job of recreating the real night house on a soundstage. This is obviously a a set, but I think, you know, he went again to the real family home and he sort of spent time there and he took a lot of pictures and his team, you know, just photographed every nook and cranny just to attempt to kind of recreate it. And um, he did a terrific job, particularly as you know, didn't have a lot of time, again, not a lot of money. In fact, I did not see the set of the house until the morning I arrived to shoot the first scene there, which is not an ideal situation. So we were all working under a lot of uh, time pressures and time constraints, and uh, so I think everyone did a terrific job. Come here. You know, this is why Nick is just perfect casting for this role, because he's, he's so sweet. Got such a warmth to him. with
0: his hair? I don't know.
1: It's kissing an Afghan. That's when he says, uh, it's like kissing an Afghan. Which I'm fairly sure doesn't mean anything to the American viewer. I'm worried that, you know, British people understand that it's a, he means an Afghan hound, but I feel like to American audiences, they're like, does he mean a person from Afghanistan? But it's nice to keep those kind of things which perhaps, you know, other audiences around the world don't quite get because it makes it feel authentic and i think even if they don't get a joke that is very british or very parochial i think nevertheless it just adds to the feeling of authenticity and the feeling of realism so it's quite keen to to keep as much of that stuff in where possible and there we are that was as i said earlier so important to me that we explain this idea that. Paige wants this for herself, not just for her family. And so the carboard belt becomes symbolic of that. Uh, I think our first use of a bit of slow-mo. And then we can see her back in action. Back to her old self. I had actually, when I first saw Florence with the blonde hair and the heavy tan, I'd lost my nerve a bit. I thought, oh, this is this just looks too much. And Maybe we should drop this whole idea of her having changed her look, even though, like I say, it was born of, of a real incident. And then I was persuaded by the producer and a number of other people to keep it in. And I think it was a s- smart move because I think it did help reflect that idea that she'd sort of lost sight of who she was and what was important. And it makes this return to the gym in her old outfit all the more thrilling. And here we are, the uh, sporting training montage. and. Originally, I had intended not to have a Rocky-style training montage, and I was quite determined about that. And it turns out everyone wants a montage. You want a montage. I'm telling you, 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 you think you don't, you think it's a cliché, and then you get to this moment in the film, and you want a montage. And so I did a, an edit without it, and it's just not as exciting, it's not as thrilling, whether you know it or not, you instinctively, in your DNA. I don't just mean me, I mean the audience. They, they they want a montage. It's just a real... It's the equivalent of a dance number in a musical or something, you know? It just You need that, you need the kind of, the joy of it, the fun of it, the exuberance of it. And I'd thought of all of the wrestling sequences themselves as dance numbers in a musical, and they're all slightly different, with slightly different moves. And uh, I guess this would be the, uh, you know, the we're going to put on the show, kids, in a musical. But yeah, you, you need a montage. And for a long time, I really wanted Long Way to the Top by ACDC. To, and i had cut this to that track. And I'd wanted a, a female vocalist or a female band to do a cover version of it. Because it just seemed nice to me, the idea that the music that accompanies Paige in America, whenever we're sort of following her story, is music that is kind of a little bit you know, rough around the edges, a little bit rock and roll, but it also has a a female vocalist, just in some way reflective of, of her and her attitude. And so I was keen to have a a cover of ACDC, but instead we went with this version of Taking Care of Business by Batman Turner Overdrive, which is about making it in rock and roll. And so I liked the sort of parallel somehow between, you know, these, these quite macho songs about, you know, making it in the rock and roll world and, you know, and working and getting your chicks for free or whatever. And and sort of parallels with that and the kind of slightly ironic juxtaposition with a a woman making it in wrestling. And that was a version done by Thunder Pussy, who, again, just a nice bit of grit, kind of rough around the edges. It seemed uh, to work well with this sequence. So again, this um, I very much thought of as a musical dance number. So I found lots and lots of clips of real wrestling matches, and I basically did, made a sort of greatest hits of all the moves that I that I thought were most fun and most exciting, and then showed them to um, our wrestling coordinators and. Um, and our stunt people, and they sort of, they put it together, and they managed to find the kind of linking material. Because in a wrestling match, you can't just do your favorite moves. There needs to be some kind of coherent connection between it. And jumping through the ropes, I just thought, was such a great ending, and... So I just said, as long as it ends with them jumping through the ropes, then, then knock yourselves out. I think, in reality, you would never stop and kind of break character in that way and smile at each other, but it just seemed important that you understood they'd sort of worked as a unit, and they were now on each other's side Appreciate it. Thanks and like I say this really is the culmination of what in reality was several years of yeah, Paige working her way up the NXT ladder but uh, you know that montage was, was long enough imagine if that was a montage trying to cover two or three years I mean it would have gone on forever you needed them on the road and checking into hotels and oh goodness it would have taken forever so here's Roy coming out of prison. There had been scenes with Roy earlier where they visited him in jail and he became this kind of... this ghost of Christmas future, you know, the, what could happen to Zack if he hadn't... Uh, his father hadn't saved him from that fight in the bar. And we had whole scenes kind of explaining that, but in the end, you know, just mentioning the fact that this, this guy had gone into jail was enough. Didn't need to see him doing it. And so this was us filming backstage at Monday Night Raw. They took us down there and we were just grabbing things as we went, really. And so, you know, we were in a real canteen. And this is, for wrestling fans, they all know that this is a two big-name wrestlers. That's Big Show and sheamus And they were just lurking around backstage. And I grabbed them and said, would you be in the movie? And they said, yep, sure. We got like 10 minutes before we have to go on in front of m- millions of TV viewers. And so they just started improvising a conversation about hot dogs. And, and we threw... Paige in that's uh, also another wrestler called The Miz, who's again was just wandering around, and I said, "Would you walk through this scene while we uh, while we're shooting?" And so it was, you know, it was very much kind of flying by the seat of our pants, stuff, just you know, grabbing these opportunities where we could. Sorry, I the hot dogs were free. Again, people ask, "Is this something which really happened?" Did Paige at WrestleMania wind up in a dressing room? talking to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and, yes, it did. And it, there were certain things which were kind of pivotal sort of story anchors, if you like. The brother getting rejected, and the first time Paige stepped in the ring when he was dressed as a Power Ranger, and and another of them was this moment with Dwayne, which which happened for real. And so I just thought, well, it's you know, so, so great I and mean, important to have it in the movie. The only real difference in, in the real story was that he also told her, we would love to make a movie about your life. And I thought that would be weird to have in in a movie about her life. I thought that would all get a little bit meta. But yes, if you're wondering, this sequence did happen. I mean, obviously I took a little bit of creative license with the way he phones the parents, but but the actual event occurred and he did tell her how much of a fan he was and he'd been following her career and how he had some good news. And all of that was real. This stuff, obviously, uh, I took a little bit of creative liberty with just for shits and giggles. And that whole backdrop there, the whole kind of looking out over Wrestlemania, that's all, again, digitally created. That, that's another good example of the the um, visual effects people adding to the movie without you necessarily realizing, obviously, we couldn't go back in time to that particular Wrestlemania event, so we had to recreate it. And so that's all sort of digitally generated. Bullshit. And I think it gives you a nice sense of scale and it gives you a feeling of what it is that she's aiming for and it's a kind of constant reminder of how big this thing is that she's shooting for.
0: You what? Yeah, it's actually him.
1: And something else which happened in the in the real encounter with, with The Rock. Paige told me that she'd got a message It said uh, DJ wants to see you. She thought, who the hell is DJ? Someone said, well, that's obviously Dwayne Johnson, you idiot. She went there. And he told her, um, yes, we'd like to make a movie. And also, I've just heard that tomorrow at Monday Night Raw after WrestleMania, you are going to debut on the main roster. And he told her all that stuff. And the other thing he told her is, and you're going to win the match. Obviously, so the um, WWE matches are predetermined. And we did shoot a version of this scene in which Dwayne tells her that. And we used that in a preview of the movie with a test audience. And you know you stay back afterwards and you hear members of the public kind of giving you their verdict on the movie and they like the movie but they were disappointed that they knew the outcome before they saw it unravel in the actual uh, movie and so there was a lot of discussion for a long time you know could we keep it in was it, it could you could you still make people care about that big final match if you knew what the outcome was because the ultimate victory is does she win over the crowd not does she win the match but as we discovered, you know, in, in these preview screenings, actually, you know, people want that rocky ending. You know, they want to enjoy the thrill of it. They want it to feel more like if they were watching it on TV. They may know it's predetermined, but they don't know what the outcome is. And so we took out the moment where Dwayne actually says, you're going to win the match. It just leaves, leaves a little bit more suspense. And uh, sort of takes us into the upcoming match. I, I love you too. and important here just to register Zach we're not quite sure how he's feeling about this is he pleased for his sister is he still that jealousy is it still lingering there still hanging there And this just seemed like a a nice payoff to uh Vince Hutch's story the idea that the tale he told earlier was actually something involving Dwayne Obviously I've uh, you know slightly made it up, but it's not um it's not a million miles from uh from all kinds of true stories in which, you know, like I say, people had those opportunities and were severely injured. And uh that sort of put play to their uh to their careers on the main roster. We're back in Norwich. Proud of the, I'm very proud of the economy of this scene. Um it's actually bizarrely inspired by a scene in the Clint Eastwood movie, Escape from Alcatraz. There's a really very elegantly written scene, which gives you a lot of backstory for Clint Eastwood's character, where um, another another inmate says, uh, when's your birthday? And Clint says, I don't know. And the guy goes, jeez, what kind of childhood did you have? And Clint just says, short. And it sort of tells you everything, really, about what his life had been. And so just there, I tried to do something similarly tight, where, you know, uh, what did she have that, that you, know, you never had? You. And uh, as I say, inspired by Clint Eastwood, as so many great things are. So now Zach is on the long climb back from his from his hole that he's been in. And um the real Zach is that tough looking guy there, the uh, guy with the shaved head, that guy there, that is the real Zach cameoing as a drug dealer. Head. I originally had a whole sequence here in which uh, Jack ends up having a fight with Zach, sort of for the... I mean, a physical fight for the soul of Ez. And I think, uh, you know, the real Zack was quite excited about, you know, that his sort of first big-screen outing was gonna be in a brawl. And we had, uh, you know, we'd worked it all out and everything. But when I got there on the day, I just thought, well, that, that doesn't seem right, because... He should win over Ez's soul because he's luring him back to the artificial fighting of wrestling, not because he's sort of beaten someone up. And it just seemed like, well, Ez learned nothing. He was in a barroom fight. His father saved him from it. Then what's he gonna do? Now he's gonna get in a real-life fight? That it, it seemed a little bit too much like a scene in a Clint Eastwood film, in a, in a Western in which Clint teaches some people a lesson with his fists. So um, I scrapped it on the day, and uh, I think the real Zack was a little frustrated as was my producer, Kevin, who, who was very keen to have a fight scene as well. But uh, that's one of the tough things when you're writing and directing on your own. You, you know, you don't have a collaborator, another writer, where you can kind of uh, discuss those things. So you sort of, you end up having to make those calls on your own and just hope that you've made the right decision. Uh, yes, you have people like the producer and everything, but everyone's got their sort of, you know, different take on things, their different agenda, they're not quite on the same creative page. So it's quite tough, you've got to make those decisions. But I think we made the right one.
0: Stand tall, mate.
1: Originally, this whole sequence was soundtracked by Enter Sandman my Metallica, and it worked terrifically well, and so the whole sequence was kind of built around that. And uh, this moment here with the kids singing in the van, they were all singing along to Enter Sandman, and we shot that, and then it turns out that we didn't use it after all. And So this is the only scene we reshot in the whole movie. We had to take everyone back out months after we'd finished filming. Poor Jack had to shave his hair again back in that style. And we had to sing a different song. But I think it works well. It's uh, a motorhead track. I think it kind of has the same sort of vibe. So once again, here's another example of us just um, bunny hopping on the back of a real WWE event. Again, they had set this up in the Staples Center and they allowed us, while they were still constructing the set, to just leap in. I think we had sort of 10 minutes to to shoot this stuff and had the WWE not been involved we'd have never been able to afford to you know to create this stuff in a in a real stadium or indeed to create it digitally really so that was one of the benefits of having WWE involved but people have asked me you know did they make lots of demands and did they put lots of restrictions on how you portrayed them and I can honestly say no I mean as someone who didn't know anything about WWE to me what they represent in the movie is it's just i don't know it's a kind of big grand american corporate success it's 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 opportunity right it's it's um if you're doing a movie about actors it represents Hollywood if it was something about musical stars, it would be um you know the record business, and I guess to me that's what w w e represents in the movie is this is this uh opportunity and this success, and you know I'm sure you know there's a whole other movie to do, which kind of looks at the complications and intricacies of WWE and how it's evolved over the years, and you know, and I'm sure there's a kind of there's a there's another whole other movie to be told about that. But that really wasn't what was important to me here. To me, it just represented, like I say, that the land of Oz or something. You know, this opportunity. And um, we had to involve them, even though we developed movie with Film 4 in the UK, we had to involve WWE because they own so much of the rights to Paige's story. Certainly the stuff, you know, the matches and everything. And obviously, we could, you know, what was I going to do if, if they didn't, if they weren't involved, would I would I have like an artificial made-up wrestling organization? So it just seemed um, to make sense for, for them to be involved and... Uh, like I said, they, they were not um, prescriptive uh, in terms of what I could do and say. I had rather ambitious plans for the shooting of this scene, and so initially we see Florence there, and she's actually in a dressing room at um, Wembley Stadium, bizarrely, and we actually had Jack in another room, and I shot them simultaneously so that this conversation could be as real and authentic as possible. But um, it was a rather grand plan that didn't quite come off because um, I couldn't really keep an eye on both conversations and, and the room that Jack was in it, I don't know it just wasn't didn't look very good and it just I don't know it, it didn't do what I wanted it to do so we ended up shooting Jack's side of the conversation back in the gym and um yeah, like it allowed me and him to focus on on what he was doing and so I think it's a very effective scene and they both give a terrific performance
0: why do you think I've been acting like such a prick and listen to me right no
1: Once again, you know, I think the original version of this scene was was very long and, you know, they had this long heart to heart. And, you know, one of the things which my editor Nancy Richardson and I did after that initial two and a half hour cut was you just go back and just start to cut out everything that felt extraneous or repetitive. And it's one of the things when you're writing a, a script, you're writing for readers and it's very hard to just say, trust me, the actors will make you care, or the actors will convey this emotion in their eyes. And so you end up having to sort of over-explain and rather overwrite every scene and basically have characters kind of explain how they feel half the time. When in actual fact, once the actors bring it all to life, so much of that dialogue becomes extraneous and the actors can just convey it like Florence does right there. You know you know that she's she's feeling anxious about the... The match, and uh, you know, it's, uh, there's just so much an actor does that you never could possibly write on the page. And so, so much of what Nancy and I did was, was just strip back all this extraneous talk that wasn't necessary and try and keep it back to a minimum. Back in the family home, nice opportunity for a bit of physicality there with an actor called Spoonface, me and my wife feeling as out of place as uh, i probably would have felt if i was really with the family watching this so uh zach is back to his old self and then we're teeing up for the big final fight now this is a performer called thea trinidad who is a wrestler and now works for wwe although i think she basically got signed off the back of her amazing work that she did here and she's uh, recreating the performance style, the kind of on-the-mic style of uh, of the real Divas champion who at this time was AJ Lee. I'd originally wanted AJ to play herself and uh, we couldn't make that happen so we needed someone to, to double for her. And uh, Thea does an amazing job and she kind of emulates the sort of rhythms and the mannerisms of the real AJ. But Thea's uh, got her own amazing origin story in that she and her father were big wrestling fans when she was growing up and tragically her own father died in the 9-11 attacks and so as a sort of tribute to him she dedicated her herself to wrestling and, and to becoming a wrestler which is an extraordinary story and um like i say the wwe bosses were so impressed after they saw her doing this that they kind of signed her up and she's now uh, in the wwe family which is amazing
0: the hell are you? Well, you can understand Paige being a a bit hesitant here, but these WWE fans will turn on her quick. Tell you what, why don't I do to you what I did to every single diva last night?
1: So here we are at Staples Center. We had one hour to shoot this sequence. We took everyone down, the film crews and a Monday night Raw telecast finished, let's say at nine o'clock and then we had an hour with the crowd. And Dwayne Johnson came down and he kind of MC'd the event. He went out in the ring and he uh, spoke to the audience. And I said to him, look, we've only got an hour. Please don't get carried away. And he goes, yeah, sure, no problem. And then did like 20 minutes on the mic, just talking to the fans, taking selfies, doing the catchphrases. Can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Yes, we can smell what you're cooking, mate. Get out the ring. We've only got an hour. And um, <laughs> it was very stressful. And so... Uh, Then we played the music, and as you saw, Florence came out, and um, she recreated this match, and she did as much of it as she could with Thea. And, you know, the crowd, I think, at times, were baffled. I mean, I think if you look very closely, you can see some of the audience sort of trying to piece together what's going on, because, of course, some of the more elaborate moves she couldn't do. So we'd have to pause and bring in her uh, stunt double, Tessa, to, to kind of do stuff for her. And so the audience, the real wrestling fans who know that there's an artificiality wrestling but aren't normally that explicitly reminded of it. We're like, what is going on here? Why have they stopped? Why is she not doing this? And uh, Florence told me at one point, she was lying on the mat, she looked across and she just saw an eight-year-old boy screaming, you suck, <laughs> which which is probably um, not the most appealing thing for an actress when she's in front of 20,000 people. But yes, she is in front of real real WWE fans. There is 20,000 of them there. She is in a stadium and she's actually recreating this match, which we massaged a little bit. Actually, Dwayne helped us choreograph and shape this match because I didn't realize this, but a, but a good wrestling match has a, a three-act structure, like a good Hollywood movie. You know, there's a beginning, middle and end and the first two acts, if you like, the, um, the, the, the baby face, the good guy is kind of Pummeled and beaten by the villain, by the heel, and it's only at the end that the kind of uh, that the good guy kind of suddenly uh, comes back and and has victory and and even though that was sort of there in the real match, it was all over very briefly and it, and it felt a little underwhelming, and so we um massaged it a little bit, but it's the real match still ended exactly like this with Paige caught in AJ's finishing move, the Black Widow, and just like in real life here, Paige won the match with her. ...finishing move known as the page-turner. There it is. Which was uh, adapted from a move that her brother used to do, which he'd sort of generously given her when she got on the main roster. And something else that that Paige had told me was that when when this moment happened for her in real life, even though she knew she was gonna win because Dwayne had told her, the emotion she felt, the adrenaline, was as real... Um, as if she had won the heavyweight championship of the world in, in boxing or something. It is, and so I think I think Florence does an amazing job here of capturing that that sort of that excitement and, and just being overwhelmed by the moment. And I think in part, Florence gets it because, you know, she's in front of 20,000 people and it's a very nerve-wracking experience. She shot that on the fourth day of filming. We shot all this American stuff first. It was the fourth day of filming. She had not had a lot of time to get into character. She had only done a handful of weeks of actual wrestling training. And so she had to go out there. And so I'm sure the adrenaline she felt when she's doing this whole sequence here, when she's on the mic, the kind of emotion that you can feel in her voice and the kind of the mix of sort of joy and uh, there's a sort of crack in her voice. All of that, I think, is, is real. And I also encouraged Florence, and she worked with Dwayne here, just to kind of to work on this end speech so that it, it's not... Directly lifted from what the real page said because it, although it's derived from what Paige, the real page said, we, we wanted Florence to kind of have a little bit of ownership of it, and, and so we allowed her to sort of, in some ways, do it in her own words. My name is Paige, and this is my house now! I just, I just think that, you know, that whole just there, the scream, it just all feels so authentic in a way that if you see the real footage of the real page, it, it feels much the same, the emotion. And then I, I'm really, very, very pleased with this music at the end. It was very tough to get right. You know, we, what do you do? Do you have a Rocky-style score with trumpets and, you know, military-style drumming? And just, we went back and forth for so long on this. And uh, I think Vic did a terrific job, and Graham, and this uh, so is, I think, the only the second time I allowed him to use piano in the whole movie, saving it for these emotional moments. And so all these shots here of the crowd chanting Page, and that's all stuff which Dwayne Helped us get because, you know, even though I, I wind him up for wasting time, actually, he, he really played that crowd like an orchestra and he got them to boo and cheer when we needed to. And he because he was there, we just thought, well, he wasn't originally in this, it's planned to be in that final moment, but given that he came down with us, we just thought, well, let's grab him and throw him in a scene with Vince and sort of the two kind of overseers of her career get to kind of have a little moment. And so in real life, As I say, Ricky had cried when he was seeing off his daughter at the airport, but we saved the crying for there at the end. And um, that seemed the right place for it. And this was a little moment which occurred to me on the day. Dwayne is often in his life followed around by a camera crew, seemingly, um, who are just constantly filming everything for his various um, media appearances and outlets and and it was there filming him and I said well what and I just I grabbed him and I and I threw Dwayne's real videographer into the scene so that I could have this moment where Paige kind of communicates with her brother through the screen and that was one of those moments where because you're also the writer you can kind of rewrite things on the fly I just thought that was a lovely way of kind of them sharing a moment through the TV and there we are came full circle, as I said. We started off with the young Zach watching uh, Dwayne on screen, and it ends with the older Zach watching his sister on the screen. It's all come full circle. Well, uh, I hope that has been of some interest to you. I am a DVD commentary fan myself, and so I've, uh, I hope I've, you know, answered some of the questions that I'd have had if I was watching the film. These captions... Uh, this is all true, as is the blind student who did become a professional wrestler. Although I think he's subsequently retired. And um, there was a lot of discussion. You know, do we include some clips of the real family at the end? You know, it's it's quite a well-worn device in movies based on true stories. But in the end, it was just too too delicious to avoid. Really, we just we just felt, you know. We, We had this amazing footage of the real family, and you get to see the dog. Look, there he is. He looks much like our dog that we cast, and you get to see the real brother and sister telling parts of the story which we just dramatized. Paige here talking about how she'd got in the ring because her brother needed someone. And you can see the real ring, and you can see the real house, and you can see uh, the real family, and how closely the actors um, dressed like them and dyed their hair like them, and and, um, it was just too too much of a, just a, too big an opportunity to miss really. And, and, you know, inevitably, you know, it's something that people love about the movie. They, they, they have these questions, these doubts. Well, does the family really look that way? Does the house look that way? Do brother and sister really wrestle that well? Well, there, there you are, you can see them in action. The fact that <laughs> mainly violence, which again is a line that we had at the dinner table, just again, because I think you, you just believe that I've made so much of this stuff up. And so when you see it here for real, I just think it helps the whole experience you've just had feel more authentic and more true, which it is. And um there's the house that we recreated. And look, Julia just yawning while her uh, husband is talking to a documentary crew. It just shows you the kind of the ease with which they they are in front of a camera, the way they communicate, and they don't really you know really give a damn what you think of them and that there's the real ricky crying at the airport and so that's the scene we recreated earlier and people have said to me oh there's no way that they would have taken all the wrestling family down there to the airport yeah they did there it was and there's the real page that moment i was saying where she just is overwhelmed when she wins the belt for real okay well there we are thank you so much for listening i'll leave you in the capable hands of ellie goulding who wrote this song specially for the end credits and thank you for listening
0: Kings of to the town upside down. Oh no. Warriors of the streets and we screamed out loud. Gonna take the world all by yourselves. There was something in the air. Oh, no. Cause nothing was as big as the dreams we shared. And no one could compare. You were my protection. Will you be there for me now? I know we had our problems, but we always come back around. Cause you're always my reflection When I see you in the crowd You're my protection Now I hold my ground Do you remember? Just for fun <laughs> Pretend you're a loser so I think I won Yeah, we could be anyone You were my protection Will you be there for me now? I know we had our problems But we always come back around Cause you're always my reflection But I see you in the crowd